0: So um, I was asked to engage a little bit with the with uh, the CRC phenomenon, or then the Christian Revival Church, as it is known. Uh, now, before I start, I just maybe just by raise of hand, who of you have been in CRC, has been a member of CRC, or want um, maybe a current member? Okay, cool, thank you. And um, who of you have wondered about them, like have questions about? The Christian Revival Church. All right, so there's a lot of interest. All right. Um, Now, as we start, I want to just first take some time to share what I hope to be a balanced approach uh, when we are going to think and talk about CRC. And I think it's important to me that you understand my approach and my attitude to this whole situation and discussion. And I'm going to ask you to see... uh, to see everything that I'm going to share in the next uh, uh, in this session in the light of what I'm going to share in the next couple of minutes, um, because I think that's important. So, first of all, I believe that when Christians disagree about something, uh, the best place to start is to first focus on the things that unite us, the things that unite Christians, uh, before we focus on the things that divide us. So, in other words, we first agra- address our agreements. Uh, and then we go to the disagreements. And of course, this doesn't mean, it doesn't follow from this, that the differences and the disagreements that we have as Christians, that that's not important. I just think it's not primary. That's what I'm trying to say. And so the point is, therefore, that I prefer focusing on the things that unite Christians first before addressing the things that divide us. Now, of course, there there is division in the church. I mean, we can see it all over the place. And so we can, we can and I think we should talk legitimately and meaningfully about the differences that we do have and the things that do divide us. I would just add this, though. As long as it is not at the cost of the things that unite us. All right. And I think the inspiration behind this... Uh, is C.S. Lewis, of course. In his his book, Mere Christianity, in the introduction, he states, Ever since I became a Christian, I have thought that the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend the belief that has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. He wants to focus on the essentials of the faith, those things that all Christians, apart from their different denominations and churches, have in common. And he calls this, he even calls this, his service to people who are outside of Christianity. Those who are not Christian, his unbelieving friends. So just by focusing on the essentials, he's doing a service to his unbelieving friends. That's how he views it. But then he goes on and he uses this analogy to talk about the Christian faith. And so he, he talks about a household that represents Christianity as a whole. And then in this household, there are different rooms and All these different rooms uh, represent the different denominations and the different churches. But the point is that all the different rooms are situated in the same house. So all the different denominations and the different churches is all situated within the household of Christianity, we can say. And it's because they have this common thing that they share, the essentials of the Christian faith. Okay, now although I wish we could always just focus on the agreements, we will eventually have to focus on the disagreements today as well. And I hope and pray that the, that the guiding principle when we do that is to speak the truth in love. Uh, now, it doesn't matter what your uh, church background is. Uh, I think this is a biblical principle that we must always pursue truth and we must pursue it not at the cost of love. And maybe just like focusing on the agreements between Christians just like focusing between, on the agreements between Christians, the essentials, the essentials of the Christian faith, just like that is a service to unbelievers, our unbelieving friends, as C.S. Lewis puts it, maybe in the same way focusing on the disagreements that we might have can be a service to each other, as Christians as well, as long as it is done in a loving, graceful, and a, chari- in a charitable way. Now what bearing does all of this have on our engagement with CRC. Maybe a couple of things. Um, first of all, let me say this very clearly. As, as far as I can see, as far as my studies goes, CRC is within the household of Christianity. And we will touch on this a little bit later. Secondly, uh, that, that means that CRC is in no way a theological cult of any kind. There might be, I would argue, cultic instances or moments But that's not the same as being a full-blown theological cult. And then thirdly, as we reach the part where I will express my disagreements with CRC, hold me accountable. Hold me accountable to disagree in a loving, graceful, and charitable way, and let's agree to disagree agreeably. Now a passage that I have um, really come to appreciate is uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he prays as follows. even as you loved me. You can notice the theme of unity here, and I think that is what we must always pray for as we engage in our disagreements. Pray for unity in the church of Jesus. And so may this discussion, may everything that I have to share here, at least be a small contribution to that pursuit of unity in the body of Christ. And now, on that note, I just want to start with some uh, background information when it comes to CRC. Now, CRC, this is just for those of you who might not know, uh, they were established in 1994 in Bloemfontein by Ad Bosov. Um, The auditorium they built in Bloemfontein apparently is a 5,500 seater. Now, I couldn't find any recent info regarding numbers of uh, CRC, but a couple of years ago, the combined membership of CRC across the country was around 53,000 members. It, it is probably much more than that now. Uh, One characteristic of Utt's ministry is his determination to build beautiful and functional uh, state-of-the-art facilities on a cash-built basis. And then their media center is technologically advanced and depicts CRC's use of technology to build one church in many locations. That's a very um, popular slogan of theirs. Um, Another important thing to mention is that they broadcast many of Utt's messages to the different churches and also on channels like TBN. Faith TV, and One Gospel. So they have a well-established broadcasting network in CRC that functions uh, very effectively. And maybe a little bit more relevant to us here in Pretoria is that 10 years after they were established, uh, they launched a 7,000-seater auditorium in 2014 here in Pretoria, which has become the epicenter to thousands of families and and a sanctuary where all people in the community are cared for and discipled. That's a quote from their website. Um, and I will end with this quote from their website, which attempts to describe Ut as a person to us. Pastor Ut is described as focused, passionate, and fervent in his hunger for the Word of God and explosive in his dynamic teaching of it. His powerful, bold, and practical mes- messages are equally refreshing in relevance to authenticity and doctrinal accuracy. Now, I think one thing uh, that we see here is that CRC definitely has a massive uh, vision for ministry, and it seems to me that they really have a sort of a go-big or go-home approach to things. Uh, that is very clear. But now I want to move on to some things that I think all churches or Christians will have in common with S- CRC. In other words, the things that, we, that I at least would agree with them, and maybe even things that I can appreciate uh, of them. So when it comes to the agreements, I usually look at uh, Christian doctrines. I think that is the best way to establish agreements and disagreements, at least on a theoretical level. And so they have a statement of faith on their website, which you can also go and read. And I think what I appreciate about that is that you would find certain essential Christian doctrines uh, stated very explicitly, like the doctrine of the Trinity, the humanity, deity, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, the inspiration of the Bible... And so you can name up, um, that that's just some of the core stuff of Christianity. And I think I like it when a church is serious about the core truth claims of Christianity. And that to me is, in one sense, at least comforting. And also, um, I'm going to quote this, uh, CRC very explicitly, and I would add, at least in our times, maybe even bravely maintains, and this is where I quote, Uh, With regard to sexual behavior, we believe in heterosexual relationships between a natural man and a natural woman within the confines of lawful matrimony. Adherence to this stated principle of sexual behavior is an inherent requirement of membership of Christian of of CRC. And I think, um, as an Orthodox Christian, I I think I can appreciate this: that they are very straightforward about their view on sexuality in our in our times, especially. Now, apart from their doctrine, what I also can appreciate is their dream that they have formulated for themselves. And you can also read that. For example, uh, CRC strives to be an oasis of life in this city where the hurting, the depressed, the sick, the frustrated, and the confused can find love, acceptance, help, hope, healing, forgiveness, guidance, and encouragement. Come to me and I will give you rest. That's what we read in Matthew 11. And then they have other scripture passages as well. They, want to, they, have a, they have a dream where they state that they want to feed the poor, to clothe the naked, and to take care of orphans and widows. And then they have more passages as well to ground that. They want to effectively share the good news of Jesus Christ with every man, woman, and child. Uh, they want to equip every member for significant ministry, helping them discover the gifts and talents God has given them. And they also want to develop every incoming member of the spiritual maturity, ministering to the whole man, spirit, soul, and body through small groups, seminars, retreats, Bible studies, and a Bible school for our members. Now, as I read through this on their website, I thought to myself, "That's that's a not, that's a real beautiful dream of a church to have something like this." It seems like there is a real focus. Um, I mean, if more churches can really formulate their goals and their ideals as vividly and uh, specifically as this, I think it would be a good thing. Um, and I want to add here: if you, they've got scripture passages there from the New Testament, but if you read through the minor prophets as well you'd find many of these concerns that they have like the concern for the poor the widow the orphan you know I think that those are very good um, uh, that's a very good vision to have to take care of and to be concerned about that another thing I can really appreciate is their multicultural ministry uh, there are a lot of churches out there who wants to have a multicultural church and I think most of them will tell you that it's very hard to achieve, at least harder than they initially thought. And so I think that's something I can also appreciate, that there's a, there's a, that might be something they get right. And I'm sure they also experience challenges on this front. It's, I don't think it's easy, but at least there's, it's there. And then the last thing I think is worth mentioning here is that when you talk to the average person from CRC, they have an enormous zeal for the kingdom of God. And I think that's that's also something worth mentioning and pointing out. Now, as I said at the beginning, uh, inevitably I will talk about my disagreements and my concerns sooner or later. And so this is where I arrive at that part now. Now, when we engage with ideas, uh, we must do so with our eyes open, our ears alert, being as self-critical and discerning as the gospel requires. And the notion that we must have an openness to correction is a Christian principle. All of us, including me, must be open to be corrected. Now what follows is not only my own disagreements and concerns with CRC, I have consulted a couple of former members who also voiced their own issues regarding uh, CRC and I will echo some of them now as well. So first of all, on a practical level, there seems to be a measure of what an atheist who once attended CRC labeled hero worship because of its centralized leadership in the form of a hierarchy with Adbosov at the top who receives a lot of attention. Adbosov is the leader of the church who consequently also has a great deal of input in the lives of its members, but also, according to some, some people will just follow him blindly in fact, one former member expressed how he would encourage members of CRC to think more critically about things that are being uttered by the leaders of CRC. Uh, someone during this COVID time explained, for example, that her final judgment on the vaccination is finally and ultimately dependent on what Ad Bosov, as the church leader, has to say about it. If he says it's fine, then it's fine. If he says it's not, then uh, she will avoid it. Uh, and here's it was Os Guinness who said that Christians in our modern era are victims of a condition of chronic anti-intellectualism. As Christians, we have lost the ability to be what he calls big picture thinkers. Okay, we are just we isolate things. We struggle to see a bigger picture, and it's because we've lost the ability, in the church at least, to a large extent, to think more critically about things, to be more discerning about what people say, uh, and to and to maybe part of the problem might even be that we've become lazy to go go and do our own homework when it comes to um, these things. Now be that as it may the centralized leadership of CRC does indeed cause concern and with it comes implicit or sometimes explicit exclusive exclusive claims with an with all or nothing expectations from the members. some former members explain how they had to speak in tongues, for example, to prove their authentic Christianity, that that was somehow a precondition for being an authentic Christian. But they were expected to do so. It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rigid uh, criteria uh, for being authentic Christians, and also it's an all or nothing. So there's a lot of disappointment when someone misses some event at the church or doesn't show up to um, home sales. Uh, And so there are high expectations. And if you disappoint, then then you know you've disappointed. Now it's almost as if the real problem is out of date structures, which CRC has successfully managed to update. Uh, The problem, however, is that it seems as if everything is now reduced to a methodology and technique which is only occasionally in search of solid theology. So there's much more talk of methodology, how do we get more people, how do we grow, and the technique how to do that, implementing marketing strategies and even uh, um, you know, psychological strategies and so on. And that's where the focus goes to when it comes to this. And it's, there's a, uh, some of the former members even expressed how there's a, there's a low view of the more traditional churches in, in CRC that they're out of date, they don't. They, they, they need to sort of catch up. Now the methodology is shaped, uh, the, the, mes- the methodology are very much shaped by things like marketing and psychology, as I've mentioned, and it is mainly aimed at quantitative church growth. In CRC, home sale leaders, for example, must submit statistics which keeps track of who attended home sale, how many are new, and of course, who did not attend home sale. And, and so everything becomes analyzed, uh, and counted, and this approach, however, is only natural in a world where consumerism has become the biggest religion, wherein everything must be measured in quantity, and not uh, necessarily quality. The point, for now at least, is that church leadership is very important. Leaders of a church doesn't have authority in themselves; the authority lies in Christ and His Word. Take, for example, Paul in First Corinthians one, verse eleven to th- uh, seventeen. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the households of uh, Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul here is trying to address the division amongst Christians, but please see the point here. It is Christ who unites and not one of the big church leaders of their own day who united them. So who are, uh, So the, I guess the, the question would be, who, who are you ultimately a follower of? And this critique is, of course, only valid where the uh, shoe fits. Are you a follower of Adbosaf or a follower of Jesus Christ? Paul even goes so far as to say that he wished he never baptized anyone in order that no one can claim to be his follower. The apostle clearly realizes uh, they all ought to be followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, That must be their first priority. One scholar uh, once said the following, The church of Christ is more than spiritual and theological, but nevertheless. Only when first first things are truly first. Over even the best and most attractive of second things, will the church be free of idols, free to let God be God, free to be herself, and free to experience the growth that matters. Take note, the growth that matters. Take note, however, this growth is first and foremost growth in godly character, knowledge of God, sanctification, depth, not quantity. Uh, For church growth viewed in measurable terms, such as numbers, is trivial. Uh, compared with growth in less measurable but more important terms such as faith, character, and godliness. Having growth in terms of numbers, of course, does not rule out the more important spiritual growth, but it does not necessarily include this type of growth either. Now, as a word of warning to all of us uh, living in this modern era, Os Guinness explains that the problem is not that Christians have disappeared, but that the Christian faith has become so deformed Under the influence of modernity, we modern Christians are literally capable of winning the world while losing our own souls. What he means is that um, we can become so obsessed with modernized technology, methodology, technique, and quantity. uh, Conquering the world with all of those things, but in the end, uh, not seeing the bigger picture. Losing the souls of people as well. Furthermore, also on a practical level, in the mix of everything at CRC, many former members also explained how people are too easily satisfied with subjective experiences and personal emotions instead of being satisfied with robust exegesis, true doctrine, and responsible theology. Now this, of course, boils down to a lack of discernment among Christians again. Uh, And a lack of discernment can, and I think... Uh, already is, very harmful to the church uh, and because it's always needed. And take note, to an extent discernment is dependent upon data, which one can get as a result of critical thinking and asking critical questions. Just to make the point, for example, one former member of CRC showed me the study manual titled Releasing the Power. And listen to some of the sweeping statements that are being made in there without any clarification as if it, as if it is self-evident. The former member became suspicious that nobody is really asking the deeper questions about some of these statements. So I'm just going to quote. These are just quotes. The Holy Spirit baptizes a born-again spirit into Jesus Christ's spirit with baptism into Christ. The result of this is that you receive the nature of God. What does it mean to receive the nature of God? There's no further clarification. Jesus Christ immerses a born-again spirit into the Holy Spirit with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The result of this is that you receive the power and ability of God. What does it mean to receive the power and the ability of God? There is no clarification. Your spirit is perfect, complete and identical to Jesus. It does not need to grow or to be fed. Why do we have something called sanctification? If we are already perfect. Your spirit knows all things. What does it mean for your spirit to know all things? Your new spirit is God's spirit. What does it mean to equate our spirit with God's spirit? You See, all of these are just sweeping statements, and I looked at each and every one of them in their context, and there is no clarification given of what exactly are being said or meant by it. And I think many of these statements are not only vague, it almost seems like they are collapsing the creator creature distinction between us and God. When I look at these statements and, and the plain meaning thereof, This rather seems like a subtle compromise that's going on here. Uh, Critical questions, which is the result of critical thinking and healthy discernment, can help to identify the problem here, which, according to some of the former members, are bad exegesis and hermeneutics on the part of CRC and its leaders. And this is probably one of the biggest concerns of the former members that I've spoken to. A lack of sound exegesis and a lack of good hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of... Uh, the discipline of interpretation, biblical hermeneutics, would be the discipline of interpreting the Bible. And this is probably one of the, the biggest concerns then. And so the ultimate example which can be observed in this regard is the idea of a prosperity gospel that originated in a new age environment and is sometimes, take note sometimes, not always, pretty clear in the teachings of CRC. Now, I know I've used some big words here, but before we talk about the New Age and the prosperity gospel, let me first start with my reason for this claim. There is a very specific idea that surfaces in some of the sermons from CRC that I have listened to in the past, sermons titled, As a Man Thinketh, So Is He," The Power of Your Thoughts, Um, and then also it, it explicitly came out in the sermon titled, Law of Attraction. And you'll be able to find this on YouTube if you want to. Now, I'm just going to give you a brief summary of the sermon and um, with some quotes from Ad Bosif, and then we'll look at it from there as well. Okay, so he starts his sermon explaining that he wants to talk about a powerful law that sort of governs our lives. And then he defines this law as the law of attraction as follows. The law of attraction simply says, like attracts like. You are attracting to yourself who you are. Then he elaborates further on by saying, we're creating our own future all the time, whether we like it or not. In this sermon, he claims that every child of God should always live a blessed life because the life blessed with goodness is God's highest desire for every uh, born-again Christian. And to support this, he mentions a whole slew of Bible passages. But the most interesting one to me that he mentioned was Third John 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go be- well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, after he reads this passage, he states that if it is translated literally from the Greek, it would be translated as to succeed in financial matters. That's a quote. Now, that it doesn't... You can just uh, look up on the Internet f- to, for a literal translation from the Greek text. I can assure you it's very far from the literal translation, to succeed in financial matters. Um, And now after this claim, he asks his listeners the following question. How come so many people still falter and fall and live in defeat and just don't live this life that the Bible guarantees? How come? I believe it's very simply, people don't understand this powerful law. And he goes on to describe the working of this law. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you're attracting things into your life all the time, good or bad, Wanted and unwanted, all the time you are sending out a force, a power, an energy that either attracts good things and good people into your life, or it repels good things and good people. Notice that, the, and then he goes on. Notice that the Bible says, "What is in your heart, you're attracting into your life all the time, whether you like it or not." You live by the simple law of attraction. All the time, you're attracting things into your life, good or bad, wanted or unwanted. You attract what is at the core of your heart. So, whatever you think about all the time, you're attracting in your life all the time. Whatever you give your energy energy, and whatever you put your focus upon, you're attracting to yourself all the time. And then at one point, he lists many negative thoughts that one can potentially have, and then he elaborates on it as follows. If you're thinking those negative thoughts, all the time you're releasing a negative energy from your heart that repels good things from you. It's like you have this invisible shield that repels, and whatever you fear, you begin to bring into your life. Now, I know this is a short overview of the sermon. As I said, the whole sermon is available on YouTube, and you can go and um, watch it if you want to. But um, when I listened to it, I thought, le- let's see what is this law of attraction, What it is? what is he talking about, and where does it come from? And this led me to the New Age movement, into this New Age spirituality. And it's for the most part, if you think about the New Age, you can think of it this way. It's a, it's a mixture between the East and the West. And uh, if you're looking for a definition, you can maybe keep the following uh, traits in mind. These are some of the main traits. Now, first of all, it's called the New Age, but it's not entirely new, though. Uh, in fact, the Christian scholars who write about the New Age movement would say it's the second oldest religion. It's the religion of the serpent. It's the, um, with the main goal to dethrone God and enthrone man. Now, that's the full-blown New Age idea. Uh, it's also pretty hard to identify um, because it's a movement, it's not like there's one identifiable organi- organization that you can look at, or one uh, fixed creed that you can go and read, and which captures the New Age. Because it's this big, dynamic, vast movement, it's, it's difficult to completely understand it and identify it. Although there are, of course, moments of it that you can see. Um, and then, as I've said, it's, it portrays this growing infiltration of Eastern and occultic mysticism into Western culture. And this leads to a strong um, syncretism. And uh, I don't know who of you have watched um, Dr. Strange, uh, but there's a portion in that movie where where I think this is actually very, uh, where you see this. Um, uh, It's this, you know, Dr. Strange is this doctor from the West. He's in a car accident. The operations isn't working. He goes to the East and he meets a guru. And then suddenly things are starting to get better. So... Um, At one point in the movie, they ask him, well, uh, uh, what happened? He said, no, the Western medicine failed, so I went to the East. And that's the idea of the New Age as well. There's this syncretism between the West and the East. And the main underlying worldview of the New Age spirituality is called a pantheistic monism. That's just to say that all is one and all is God. God. Everything is inherently one. There's a, that's monism. There's this inherent oneness to everything. And pantheism says that all is God. Now, if you think about this, that would mean that the individual is also God. If you follow the worldview, you can think of it this way. Um, you have a, a big mass of water and then different streams flowing out of that big mass of water. And just like the essence of the water in the different streams is of the same essence as the water in the big mass... That's the, the same divine essence is in each individual, as it, as the same essence, which is the same essence of God. And that's the idea, at least, in a monistic, pantheistic worldview, that the individual becomes deified. Now, when you think about the emphasis on the self, which is a definite trait of the New Age, you can understand why something like the Law of Attraction comes from the New Age. Because what the Law of Attraction does is it gives every individual the ability to control their own lives uh, to the finest detail. Now, if you haven't catched what is meant by the law of attraction as Ad Bosov defined it, it's basically defined in this in a similar way by many of the new age pioneers out there today. But, before we look at what some of them have to say, I can just trace it back to, um, you can go to Parkas Phineas Quimby. He lived in, from 1802 to 1866, and he sort of laid the foundation for the new thought movement. And the New Thought movement was just a forerunner to the New Age movement. And then the, the, the actual phrase, law of attraction, can be traced back to a woman named Helena Blavatsky. Um, and she started the Theosophical Society. Uh, she uh, claimed that she was able to communicate with higher spiritual beings. And she considers her entire life's work just to be like an expression of what that higher spiritual beings wanted her to do. Um, And so you can trace this whole thing back through the New Thought movement, through the New Age movement, and then especially to The Secret. Who of you have heard of the book called The Secret, written by Rhonda Byrne? Uh, There's actually a movie, I think. If you go on YouTube, you'll probably find a trailer to the movie as well. But that's the idea. She's actually talking about the law of attraction. That is The Secret, the law of attraction. Okay, so listen to how she defines it then. The universe offers all things to all people through the law of attraction. Each of us has the ability to tap into that unlimited invisible supply through our thoughts and feelings and bring it into our experience. So choose for you because you're the only one who can. She goes on. You are creating your life with your thoughts and your feelings all the time. Whatever you think and feel creates everything that happens to you and everything you experience in your life. If you think and feel I've got a difficult and stressful day today, then you will attract attract back to you all people, circumstances, and events that will make your day difficult and stressful. She's uh, Bosov is just echoing whatever she's re- she's written down here in her book. And I've uh, look. I, I, I guess let me just look at the time before I go through all that. Yeah, I have many other quotes here as well, but I'm going to skip that because we are limited in time. Um, so if you want to come and look at it afterwards, you can you can come. Okay, so I think you can see the overtones of the New Age movement in Ad's sermon as well, especially pertaining to the law of attraction. Okay, uh, just, just as we read through those comments. Now, uh, I have also read his book, I think this was long ago, but I think it was titled Live a Yes Life. I cannot remember the exact title, but I'm just going to share something from that um, because I think that ties in with the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement. So the New Age Spirituality gave birth to what is known as the Prosperity Gospel or the Word of Faith movement. And the technical name of the Law of Attraction in the Prosperity Gospel is just Positive Confession. It's just sort of, it's been renamed Positive Confession in, in that movement. Now the reason why this movement is called the Word of Faith is because the name Word of Faith emphasizes the importance and the power of your words. Even, and even your thoughts. Faith, as seen by the positive confession teaching of this movement, uh, does not imply the usual Christian understanding of faith in God, but rather faith in your own faith. And consequently, the speaking of so-called faith-filled words. Faith is therefore not faith in God, but a force you direct at God to manipulate Him or to equip Him to do as the faith practitioner sees fit. Now, to some extent, it seems that bosof also writes about this in his book, Um, explaining that we must change from the negative to the positive because in the same way our faith can be seen and heard, our unbelief is also very visible and audible. Accordingly, God can only work with the positive uh, or negative power that is within us. Everyone must therefore be careful with their thoughts and words since God, the angels, and the demons are all always listening to our faith or unbelief. The moment we open our mouth to speak, we can invite God into the equation— Or leave him out of it. If there is a no in our words, God cannot intervene on our behalf. This is from His book. You will find all of this in His His book. um, Yes, here I have the title: "Live a Yes Life." Now, the theological consequence of this is this idea is that God is turned into a sort of a vending machine. If you throw in the right amount of money and you press the right buttons, then it will deliver whatever you want. All right, that's that's. I think that's what happens. And I think in a we can also, if we want to think in a theological sense uh, sorry a sociological sense we can blame many of this on pluralization in our modern era. Modernity multiplies the number of options people have in the private s- spheres at all levels, including that of faiths, worldviews and also ideologies. And the result of this pluralization is a greater sense of relativism and subjectivism uh, surrounding the Christian religion in the modern world. And in the case of CRC, it ended at a place where the New Age movement has very explicitly left its mark. All right, but I want to just end uh, by sharing some final thoughts. And these thoughts come especially from Os Guinness. Um, And they are not all necessarily applicable to CRC, but I think they're all things that we need to keep in mind as we're doing church, if I can put it that way. Now, he gives us, I think, a couple of valuable things to remember. First of all, we must have a balanced understanding between quantity and quality in the church, especially when it comes to real big churches. Be careful not to lose sight of the balance between quantity and quality. The point is, as I've alluded to earlier, is that growth in quantity may never trump quality. Moreover, uh, many mega churches uh, make much of their front door statistics, who comes in and why, but less of their back door statistics, who leaves and why. What is sometimes uh, counted as conversions in the megachurch movement is more accurately only transfers. People who were already Christians and just moving over to another church. Secondly, make sure that theology remains central and not methodology. The examples I came across is the, um, for example, the subordination of worship and discipleship to evangelism and all three of them to entertainment. This shift can be very subtle and um, uh, And I think that that makes it more difficult to see it, because it's a temptation to be relevant at the cost of truth. And in line line with this is the point that church leaders must be responsible theologians who are not audience-centered, but gospel-centered. This, however, demands good exegesis and hermeneutics, and something that I would say is evidently absent at CRC. Thirdly, churches shouldn't lose sense of historical awareness. If you put in some effort to study church history, it might be easier to avoid pitfalls in your own day and age. Also, it will enable you to discover the trends in the church during the last century, which is typically, these are some of the trends, typically from theology to experience, from truth to technique, from elites to populism, and from from an emphasis on serving God to an emphasis on servicing the self in serving God. Fourthly, it is sometimes easy to compromise on things for the sake of relevance. Such passages as 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 22 captures this dynamic perfectly, climaxing in Paul's summary, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. The church for their origin tried to express the balance we need on this point by referring to the Exodus. He taught that Christians are free to plunder the Egyptians, but forbidden to set up a golden calf. Um, you are free, uh, you are free to, uh, to use things in the world, but remember, we are in the world but not of the world. We are free to utilize, but we are forbidden to idolize. So each of these contrasts express the critical tension with the world that we are required to maintain as a church. Um, and this tension is simultaneously a sign of obedience and a source of strength, a leading distinctive and a leading dynamic. And then my last point here um, is probably the most fundamental one and the most important one. In the church of God, we must let God be God. And therefore, the church is only the church when she lives and thrives finally by God's truths and God's resources. And his biggest truth and his biggest resource that he has given to the church is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That, of course, is the cornerstone of the Christian faith, and that is our resource. All right, I'm gonna stop here, so thank you very much.